In midsummer, a couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skoll! Joining me are writer and director Ari Aster and star Jack Rayner, who plays Christian in the film. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So here's the thing. I have a whole list of questions that I made up uh, before I saw the movie. I just saw it last night. And uh, I've been up all night thinking about the movie. And I don't know that I need any of these questions. So (laughs) there's so much more to talk about. So, Ari, I'll start with you. I don't think that it's right particularly to call this a horror film or to really try and classify it in any way. I don't know that other than family drama that there's another tag that I would hang on this. How do you feel about it? Well, you know, I, um, <laughs> I'm i not one to really c- categorize my own films, mm-hmm. but then, you know, you're kind of thrown onto these uh, press tours and you yeah, have to yeah. find, you know, the ways that you're comfortable speaking about them. And I, I've been calling it a, um, a breakup movie. Um, and even while I was making the film, when people were asking me to sort of summarize what I was doing, um, I would just kind of say that. Um, but, uh, you know, it is it is a contribution to the folk horror genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe what distinguishes this from other folk horror films, like The Wicker Man, for instance, um, would be that for the uh, for many members of the cast, it is a folk horror film. But for our protagonist, it's really more of a fairy tale. Yeah, and and it's difficult to kind of talk about without giving too much away as to why this becomes a fairy tale for her. But it is uh, a, a story where at the beginning she goes through an unimaginable loss. And then eventually finds a place in the world, I think, but through uh, circumstances that you might not imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and that I is agree. as vague as I can possibly yeah. be about and, it, I think. And we're already straying into spoiler territory. Yeah. But um, but I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Jack, let's talk about Christian, your character here. Uh, I read that at one point you thought that uh, the character was just kind of not a great guy. When you first read the script, you said, ah, I don't know, what can I do with this guy? How did you find the layers in the film? Well, I felt when I read the script that, you know, not that, I mean, he's not a great guy, but I saw an opportunity in the character to create, you know, something empathic and um, something that was multidimensional. Uh, I know from, you know, my own life experience that, there are times when I'm, you know, lacking in a relationship and I'm not necessarily able to provide, you know, the, the, you know, the other person with what they need emotionally or, you know, whatever. And that's something that we can probably all relate to. So, you know, it was important for me to invest some of that into the character. Um, and I feel like with the majority of people who see the film, you know, they, they're pretty clear that, you know, they, they can kind of put their se- themselves in the perspective of, of Christian or Danny, although ultimately we, we do land, you know, on, on Danny's side of the line here. And Danny being your girlfriend in the film. Yeah, played exactly. by Francis Played Pugh. by yeah. Florence Pugh. Yeah, Florence Pugh. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but you know, I say that, and at the same time, there are there are some horrendous things that this guy does in the film. You know, um, again, not to give any spoilers away, but he is also kind of uh, not a nice dude at all. I just thought he was self-centered more yeah, than self-involved than, and self-involved. Not you know, doesn't really have any emotional intelligence, and he's a bit of a muppet. <laughs> and it, the film is funnier. Also, then I think that uh, you might assume if you just hear this old like, oh, it's a it's a folk horror film or it's 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 a family dysfunction film, whatever sort of label you want to throw in it. But it's quite funny all the way through right up until kind of the, the, the final moments. There are moments that made the audience I saw it with last night laugh out loud. And is that a way for you as a director to kind of break the tension or uh, what what device is humor in your films? Well, I'm I I've been happy to hear that people find the film funny. Um I I think, you know, for me it's 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 funny, you know, all the way to you know to the very end. Yep. Um there are things at the end that make me laugh more than anything else. Um I it for, for me at least in this case, it's not uh, a device to sort of break the tension. Um if anything, I've always seen the film as being something of a of a dark comedy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and in some ways, you know, the movie is working towards this crescendo um, that you know I I'm where I'm hoping the audience is sort of uplifted. And if anything, it's just that that uh, the brand of catharsis we're playing with here is 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 kind of perverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think that a film without humor is a film wasted, and even, even Hereditary for me was, was sort of, you know, was laden with, with moments that, that I found funny. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity, and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. Well, you described this as uh, like a high school teenage comedy. A dark high school teenage comedy at one point in one interview that I saw you do talking about Midsommar. Well, I'm, I'm not sure if I... I I I I would call this film a dark, you know, a teenage <laughs> comedy. But I but but I was really thinking about the structure hmm. of um, of certain romantic comedies and and uh, um, and especially you know high school romantic comedies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and typically you'll um you'll find a framework in which you have. Uh, you know, a, um, a woman who, or a girl who's who's uh, in a relationship with with the wrong guy, right. um, and she's stuck on the wrong guy, and then the right guy is like right under her nose the whole time, and then <laughs> finally at the end she'll be able to liberate herself from him, and and she's and, Molly Ringwald exactly all along. She's, yeah, she's Molly Ringwald, and she and you know, and she. she she can finally go into the backyard with a shoebox filled with all of her toxic memories, and she can just throw it into the bonfire, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and she's been liberated, you know. And so, um, and so, I I was really thinking a lot about that structure, and I wasn't, you know, looking at those movies, but I I just have them in, in my bones, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think most of us do, you know. I, like we just we 
we know those tropes, and um, and at a certain point, you know, those cl- those cliches come to feel like home to us, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that I definitely like to do as a filmmaker is to is to um, try to take a, a you know a, a dead horse and kind of beat some new <laughs> new new life into it. Jack, tell me a little bit about shooting this. I, I read an interview with you where you talked about uh, how, you know, some of the cast uh, spoke uh, English, some spoke Swedish. Uh, you shot in Hungary, so you have uh, people speaking Hungarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell me a little bit about maybe the challenges that that presented. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big difficulties for us was having, I mean, three kind of primary languages spoken on set and only two people who spoke all of those languages. (laughs) So, you know, just in terms of coordinating the production, given the intricacy of, um, you know, Ari's kind of shot list and and the design of the cinematography in the film, you know, you'll you'll know from having seen it, there's a lot of very long, uh, you know, refined camera movement with a lot of moving parts. And uninterrupted takes. And And uninterrupted takes. And also, you know, given the fact that we were shooting in broad daylight, you know, like blistering sun, you know, for however many Mm -hmm. hours we could, there's a lot, like there's just shadows moving all the time. So it was a a bit of a liquid set. The the folklore that is in the film, uh, how much of it is real? How much is it? Uh, a construct. What 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 should we look at and say? Oh, that's that's actually real. Well, um, <clears throat> the film is really kind of a stew of of influences, and you know, and uh, uh, I I I I did do a lot of research into Swedish history, Swedish uh, midsummer tradition, Swedish folklore, um, mythology, um, and uh, and then I went into. Uh, German and English uh, midsummer traditions. Um, I I returned to uh, Fraser's The Golden Bough, and uh, and I I uh, did a lot of research into different uh, spiritual movements, which I find really beautiful. And so I've been trying not to uh, I've been trying not to name them and, right. and sully them with uh, with midsummer. Right. But um, but uh, uh, I I kind of drew liberally from. Uh, you know everything I found that that would you know that suited the uh, the story, and then and then from there it became a matter of uh, of invention and um, and and building this world into you know what uh, what the what the story needed. What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? It's like another world. You're listening to part of my conversation with Ari Aster, the director of Midsommar, and its star, Jack Rayner. Now, this is a tough movie to categorize. It's not exactly a horror film, although there are some very horrifying moments. It's more the story of a young woman trapped in a loveless relationship and looking to find a community outside of the one that she was born and raised in. Uh, This movie will, I guarantee, unsettle you. It is probably the very definition of a film that's not for everybody, Uh, but when I saw this, I couldn't get to sleep that night. I was up all night thinking about the various things that I'd just seen on the screen. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. 
Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! Joining me are writer and director Ari Aster and star Jack Rayner, who plays Christian in the film. Welcome. Jack, there's uh, a scene where a very elaborate ceremony happens that ends in kind of a, a, a terrifying way. And the, the villagers are completely comfortable with the idea of what's happening. It's part of their tradition. The Americans that are there, of which you play one of them, um, are, are horrified by what they've seen. But as I was watching it, I, I couldn't help but think, because it, it, it's explained, and again, I'm talking around it so we don't give anything away, but it's explained why this, this ceremony happens. And it really struck me that the horror is just cultural. You know, the the horror is just because you don't understand as an American yeah. person in that situation, you don't get that there are hundreds, if not thousands of years of tradition behind this. And it seems terrifying because of your uh, uh, North American beliefs or, or, or tenants or whatever. But it 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 for them is completely natural. So it's not exact again not exactly horror but it's a horrifying situation yeah i think one of the really strong things about the film just to go back to the folkloric aspect of it is that um you know like so i come from i come from ireland and obviously we have a rich mythological tradition um that extends back beyond the pre-christian era and we didn't write anything before christianity arrived in ireland so our history and our mythology are very closely entwined um, and there are customs and beliefs attached to that that are very strange, particularly for people today. Right. Um, and something that I love about this film is that uh, it being based in this kind of folkloric element, it kind of forces the audience, much like it does with the, the humor that you're talking about, it kind of forces the audience to kind of let go of their... Um, understanding of you know the social structures that we live in and, and even our, our kind of moral code that we live by and to be constantly interrogating that and reassessing it as they're watching the film uh, much like these young anthropological American students do mm -hmm. you know um, and I think that that's just a really great setup and and kind of builds the tension for the audience in a really interesting way the bit that I didn't set up in this is that this takes place at a midnight sun ceremony in Sweden so it's daylight pretty much 24 hours a day except you didn't shoot when it was 24 hours a day so yeah. was that complicating things as you talk about shadows would be ever shifting you probably only have a certain amount of hours in a day that you can shoot rather mm -hmm. than this unlimited time you may only have you know five six hours a day what kind of complications does that uh, lead to you as a director and is that why you didn't eat for like three months on the set I was told you didn't eat anything <laughs> Out of stress for for that amount of time. Uh, well, it, it it sounds like you might have heard that from from Florence, yes. who was always uh, pushing um, protein bars on me, <laughs> um, despite the fact that I I was eating just fine. Oh, okay, uh, all right. But, but may, maybe not may, maybe not while we were shooting. It was yeah, yeah. it was at night that I kind of caught up on what I right. hadn't eaten uh, during the day. But um, but yeah, no, logistically this was a tough one. Um, we uh, we were shooting in Hungary, um, so we didn't have the uh, the twenty four seven sun that that you'd find in Sweden. Um, we we uh, we weren't able to shoot in Sweden because it would have been just too expensive. You know, we we are a low budget film, um, and uh, and we built this entire village from scratch. And so uh, I could have only done that um, in a place like Hungary. Um, 
And uh, and so, yeah, we were shooting French Hours, which is uh, 10 hours with no lunch. And it, it was... Uh, it was pretty rare for us to get off the first shot before, uh, like, three hours into the day just because of logistics and you have, you know, a, a large crew that, again, um, uh, speaks Hungarian yeah. and, and not English. And then you have um, you have 60 to 80 uh, background actors that you have to, you know, uh, um, block out and uh, and they're dancing and they're and a lot there's choreography involved even when they're not dancing they seem to be doing hand gestures that were all very choreographed it felt like exactly you got people in the foreground midground and background mm-hmm. and they all have to be hitting certain marks at at certain times and so it uh, the choreography was very difficult and uh, and um, and so you know we 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 found ourselves you know shooting. Se- about seven to eight hours each day, which which is uh, not not much, yeah. um, uh, especially after Hereditary, where we were shooting you know up to fourteen hours a day, uh, which was a luxury, and we were you know sh- shooting that on a stage. Um, but which uh, you can control, yeah, yeah which you yeah. can control, and and ultimately you know we are we are tr- hoping to make a very beautiful film, and mm-hmm. but the sun you know doesn't care what you're trying to do. <laughs> Um, it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, rise, uh, on the east, yep. and, and then it's gonna set, you know, over on the it, west. At, and, at a certain time, and that's that. Yeah. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. We only do this every 90 years. I was most excited for you to come. If you are a fan of folk horror films like The Wicker Man, Midsommar might be right up your alley. They don't make a lot of these anymore, these big pagan cult films. Uh, They were very popular in the 60s, early 1970s. Uh, They kind of fell out of favor. I don't know if Midsommar is going to start a new wave of them coming along, but certainly this film will unsettle anyone that goes to see it. It is, uh, I think, probably the very definition of a film that's not for everyone. A colleague who sat through uh, more movies with me than than either of us would care to remember declared it one of the worst films she's ever seen. But that is just the subjectivity of art. It's the polarizing nature of a film that doesn't easily fit into any definable category. I loved it. For me, it's like a four and a half out of five star movie. But keep in mind, this movie may not be for you. Can you feel the love tonight? Look at the stars. The peace the evening brings. The great kings look down on us from those stars. The world for once in perfect harmony with all its living things. And so will I. Welcome back, everybody. You may know Billy Eichner as the star of Billy on the Street. It's his own talk show that he does on the street. And if you haven't seen it, it's really something. He runs 
through New York City, stopping people at random, asking them questions. And if you get it right, sometimes he gives you a dollar. Sometimes he just uh, yells in your face and continues to run along. It is a wild reinvention of what a talk show can be. And I became a fan watching that show. But he's also an actor. You've seen him in Neighbors 2 and a lot of other things. Right now, probably his biggest role to date opens in theaters uh, on July 19th. He plays Timon in The Lion King. Uh, he's starring opposite Seth Rogen, who plays Pumbaa. Uh, they're the meerkat and warthog duo that were so popular in the first animated version of the film. Well, they're back, and I had a chance to talk to Billy Eichner about playing this character. We talked about the difference in tone between an animated film and this sort of photorealistic film about Hakuna Matata, and whether that is a philosophy that fits in well today. Uh, and this is what he had to say. Here's Billy Congratulations on the film. Thank you. How would you describe the relationship between Timon and and, and Pumbaa, uh, and how it's different than it was in the original animated film to what you and Seth Rogen have here? Well, I think it's naturally, the differences are naturally dictated by how Seth Rogen and I are different than Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella. Right. Uh, I grew up worshipping Nathan Lane. I grew up in New York, going to a ton of Broadway shows. So I knew about Nathan before The Lion King. I saw him in Guys and Dolls in like 1992, wow. a very famous production, and I was obsessed with him. Um, at the same time, I think him and Ernie brought a very Broadway-inspired Borscht Belt, vaudevillian sensibility to Timon and Pumbaa. And Seth and I come more out of the comedy world, the improv world, and so we really just leaned into that. Luckily, we knew each other before mm -hmm. the movie. We'd worked together a little bit. Seth had done a Billy on the Street segment with me, and I was in Neighbors 2. And so we just got in there, and we just, we just went for it, you know, and we discovered our chemistry along the way. Yeah, well, I was told that you, you read the script through a couple of times, mm -hmm. and then John Favreau's like, all right, just let it rip now. And then you can yeah, do one off book, right? Yeah, he literally had us throw the scripts down on the ground, and then they had built a makeshift stage. And they had cameras and microphones all over the perimeter of the stage. And they had me and Seth Rogen and JD, who plays young Simba, literally just act out and improvise through the entire movie. And John, if we forgot, we were like, wait, what's happening in the scene? And John would just yell it out. <laughs> and then he just had us riff. And we thought that was really just an exercise to like loosen ourselves up. But it turned out... A lot of that improv ended up in the movie. Wow. But it makes the conversation in the movie seem so real and very conversational and, and grounded. And I think that's another difference between this version and the older version. Well, I guess you, you need that. This is photorealistic. Exactly. You've got to have a, a different tone to the, to the dialogue. Yeah, exactly. The, um, the way that we performed had to match the style of the visuals. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very different style than the original. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. But a king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, the sun will set on my time here 
and will rise with you as the new king. Now, you sing two of the best-known songs uh, from the musical, Can You Feel the Love Tonight and Hakuna Matata. You sing, these are all duets and in some cases Mm -hmm. more than that. Were you in the studio when Beyonce was singing? I was not. No. Now, the part that Seth and I sing in Can You Feel the Love Tonight is separate from the part that Beyonce right. sings with Donald Glover. We kind of start the song and end the song. And then I have one short spoken scene with Nala, her character, that she wasn't in the studio for. But one remarkable difference between the way we did this and the way they usually do these types of movies is that, for the most part, we were all in the studio together. Yeah, because normally you're not. You, no. You, and I've never understood how you can create any kind of chemistry on an animated film, when I come in and do my part, two months later you yeah. come in and do my part, and then they just cut us together. Yeah, and, and in this in this situation, Seth and I were together. Donald Glover and Seth and I recorded Hakuna Matata together. Yeah. Um, Hans Zimmer was there. John was wow. there. Pharrell. Uh, <laughs> it's quite a crew. Wow. wow, <laughs> yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah. So Hakuna Matata means no worries, do your thing. Is that the best philosophy for our time? Well, I think, um, <laughs> I think you should see the movie because yeah. – uh, that is a little bit of a difference in this version and the old version in the way the theme of no worries and Hakuna Matata ends up playing out. Mm-hmm. is a little bit different. And I think um, the way we handle it uh, speaks to our current moment uh, in a way that it should, in a way that I think is very compelling. So I think there's a time and a place for Hakuna Matata, no worries. And I think there's a time and a place to really worry. <laughs> Life's not fair. Is it, my little friend? While some are born to feast, others spend their lives in the dark. Begging for scraps. This is kind of the obvious question, I I guess, but you no doubt grew up watching Disney films Mm -hmm. and and the Disney musicals and that sort of thing, and now you're part of one. Like 20 years from now, 50 years from now, people will be watching this and hearing your voice. Does that resonate with you in a a way that might be different than other films? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty crazy. Uh, I said to Seth, I was like, you know, no matter what else we do, he's been in some very popular movies, but... There's a good chance that our voices will be heard in this more than our voices will ever be heard in anything that we ever do for the rest of our lives, which is kind of daunting. Yeah. Um, but also, how exciting. Yeah. You know, what a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I love musicals. I love Disney. You know, what else, what else do you want in this life? <laughs> Eichner talking about playing Timon in The Lion King. Rick Steves is one of the world's great travelers and travel writers. His books are available wherever fine books are sold, and for every one that you buy, you'll be contributing to a good cause. The travel guru recently announced he'll donate $1 million each year from his company's profits in an effort to fight climate change. Here's Rick Steves. Why should people travel? We'll start with the hard stuff. Well... You know, the world's an exciting place, and if you stay home and you let uh, commercial media shape your worldview, you're really being taken advantage of. You need to get out there and make friends with the rest of the planet, and then I think you realize it's filled with 
beautiful people and joy and love and, uh, and you come home with empathy for other people and I think empathy is a beautiful thing. Is yeah. that what you call good travel? Thoughtful travel. Thoughtful travel? Yeah. I mean travel can be escapism, it can be recreation or it can be transformational. Mm -hmm. My mission as a travel writer in the United States is to inspire my readers or my viewers uh, to venture beyond Orlando. That's the big goal, because there's only one guidebook that sells better than the Rick Steves Italy guidebook in the United States, and that's the guidebook to Disney World. Now, I can't compete with that kind of la-la yeah. land stuff, but I can remind people, you can travel and actually learn about other cultures. And the more you do that, the less afraid you become. You come home as a citizen of the planet. Mm -hmm. I come home more thankful than ever that I, I live where I, I am and I appreciate what I've got, but I also realize that you can celebrate the diversity on this planet rather than being afraid of it. What got you started traveling? I never wanted to travel. No. My dad decided when I was a schoolboy to import pianos from Germany. So he really? came home from, I remember I came home from school one day and my dad said, son, we're going to Germany to see the piano <laughs> factories. Uh, dad, that's a stupid idea. Uh, but I went over there and I realized after a couple of days, this world's a fascinating place. And, and was there a thing? Was there something that you saw? Was it just that people spoke a different language maybe you had never heard before? Well, I was statuesque German women with hairy armpits. <laughs> As a 14-year-old kid, to see this, like, wow, to be sitting with my relatives in Norway watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon and hearing the news broadcast in Norwegian mm -hmm. instead of English and realize the whole world is celebrating this. This yeah. is not a United States thing. This is a human accomplishment. To talk to a man with a big handlebar mustache who said, who, who told me what he saw when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo in 1914. To, to be surrounded by all of that culture and history, I realized, man, oh man, this is an interesting place and, and the world can be my playground. I ended up uh, getting a, a history degree accidentally at the <laughs> University of Washington just because history classes were so much fun. I remember waking up in the dorm and it occurred to me, I've got seven history classes under my belt, three more, and I'm a historian. Let's push on through. <laughs> <laughs> and is that what pushed you into writing these stories down? You know, you, the, yeah. the, the research, the background, the love well, of travel? Well, it's interesting because at first I, I was a piano teacher. My kids wouldn't practice in the summer, and I thought, I'm not going to struggle with this. I'll see you in September. I'm Pianos going to play Europe. a big part in your life. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> but I realized after several trips that I was learning from my mistakes and right. I was becoming a much better traveler. And very, very uh, poignant to me, other Americans were making the same mistakes I made the year before. Right. And I, I saw them making these mistakes, and they weren't trip ruining, but they were just expensive and mm -hmm. a shame. And I thought, if I could package the lessons I've learned from my experience into a, a guidebook, other people could learn from my mistakes rather than their own have better trips, and I'd have a good excuse to go back to Europe and update my material. So I've been doing that for the last 30 years, spending four months a year in Europe. I've got the same mission now that I had back then, but now I've got technology beyond my wildest dreams to amplify my teaching. I've got a wonderful staff of 100 people that I work with in Seattle, and we've got guidebooks for every country in Europe, every great city in Europe now, and that's my beat, really. I see Europe as the wading pool for world exploration. And I'm just having so much fun learning and uh, taking notes and sharing these ideas for people who are fortunate enough to travel. What was the break? What was the point at which you said, okay, I, I, I don't have to teach any more piano. piano. I don't have to do any <laughs> of that stuff anymore. Well, I self-published the first edition of yeah. my Europe Through the Back Door book in 1980. And when you, and when you have a book... didn't self-publish so much back then. No, I just thought uh, I was pretty humble about it. And I thought I'm not going to impress any publisher, but... I was giving talks, and I thought I can 
talk for all day long or I can write a book and talk for three hours and let you buy the book. Right. And I, I, I learned back then, uh, the, mo the best thing I can do is use my information as a publicity stunt. Give free classes, give a lot of information out and then people will buy my book or take my tours. And today I, I do the same thing. I, I produce a radio show and a public television show and I just give it to the system for free and it, it goes all over the country and um, I can uh, do my business just selling these tours and, and making the guidebooks. And the new one is called Travel as a Political Act. It's the third edition right. of this book. What's yep. new? Uh, my publisher, I wrote Travel as a Political Act after 9-11, after mm -hmm. me traveling in the Holy Land and Iran and traveling all over the world, uh, getting out of my comfort zone, realizing that the most important souvenir you can take home, the most beautiful souvenir, is a broader perspective. Right. I'm writing for Americans, uh, and I have to remind my countrymen that we're 4% of this planet. And we're a nice 4%, but there's 96% out there, yeah, yeah. and you can get to know there's the neighbors. Lots more, yeah. And it's so much fun to do that. And my country is so fearful right now. People used to say, bon voyage, now they say, have a safe trip. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just nonsense. When somebody tells me have a safe trip, I say, well, you have a safe stay at home. <laughs> okay? And I was going to update the Travel as a Political Act book, and my publisher was all excited about this. And they said, but there's so much different now that we have Brexit, mm -hmm. we have President Trump. We've got all sorts of changes in drug policy. We've got all sorts of changes in Central America. We've got Poland and Hungary and Erdogan changing the dynamics in Europe with this populism and so on. So I said, if we're going to update, if we're going to reprint Travel as a Political Act, let's do a new edition. So this new edition is post-Brexit, post-Trump, post, -Trump, post uh, I'm, I'm really into drug policy reform mm -hmm. in Europe, sharing examples of things I learned in Europe. I'm really into struggles in Central America that were framed for an American as communist against freedom, and it's really landless peasants against greedy corporations, right. and uh, how can Americans be introduced to these ideas from a traveler's perspective? So that's the fun of this book. A little different than my guidebooks to Paris or London, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. It's a whole different thing, but I've been teaching for 30 years, and I've had this sort of natural evolution in my passion as a teacher. First, it was the skills. That was the 1980s. I wrote Europe Through the Back Door. Then it was appreciating art and history. I wrote a book called Europe 101. And since 9-11, the pinnacle of that Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs is to travel in a way where you get out of your comfort zone and, as I said, come home with an empathy for people outside of our borders. And that's what makes it important. I think the more empathy. important now than ever. You know, you know Canadians are not uh, as burdened with this, I think, as Americans, but it's a challenge for, I think, almost everybody, is not to be ethnocentric. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for Americans to think we're the norm, but we're not. And the Americans that are the most ethnocentric are the ones that are also the most fearful. And they happen to be the ones buried deep in the middle of our great country with no passports. Mm -hmm. People whose worldview is shaped by news media, commercial news media. And those are the people that I wish I could just get a plane ticket for and help them go out there and get to know the world because it's, it's a beautiful place. Let's talk about poverty tourism. This is something that uh, you hear about, you, you uh, have people that travel to the poorest places on earth. Mm -hmm. And I often feel that poverty tourism, I mean, the name says it all, You're, the, the people that are going are going not out of a sense of helping, but out of a sense of, of uh, wanting to have a look and feigning empathy, but I'm not sure yeah. that it's actually there. Well, it is a serious responsibility if you decide to travel to the developing world and, yeah. and have voyeurism kind of of their struggles and their poverty. I've been traveling to poor parts of the world as a good steward ever since I was a college kid. And I remember even back in, in those old days going down to Central America, and I, I wrestled with this because I was spending to go down there 
probably three years' income of the people I was taking right. pictures of. Right. Every time I took a photograph back in the days of film, that was half a day's income. And I would take two photos just to get a good shot. Yeah. And I, I struggled with this. I, I used to be, go on these reality tours, and they're wonderful tours, powerful, educational tours. And I realized that if I go home and then take that new sensibility home and live that as an American citizen, go into the voting booth, and not in the privacy of the voting booth, vote for what's good for me, mm-hmm. but understand that who wins this election has a bigger impact on people south of the border. That's a very good investment that I went down there and learned that. If I come home and say, great, I got pictures of me at the well with a lady with a jug on her head, that's not going to accomplish anything. But I'm all into, okay, you had that experience. Now, what are you going to do mm-hmm. back home as a citizen, of, as a caring citizen of the planet? I've got a gig in public television in the United States and, and so on, so I'm going to go with my TV crew just in, a couple, in, a, just in the next uh, couple of months to Guatemala and Ethiopia, and we're going to make a one-hour special mm-hmm. on the, the, the foundation of extreme poverty and what modern developmental aid is doing, just because that's an area where Americans, I think, are steep on the learning curve. And in one spasm of fear and selfishness, we could zero out all of our foreign aid, and I think that would be tragic, not only from a love your neighbor point of view, and that doesn't resonate with a lot of Americans these right. days, but from a selfish um, national security point mm-hmm. of view, we cannot have this desperation south of the border because it makes the world less stable. So I can fashion that into a TV show and bring it home, and that's a, a healthy kind of travel to the developing world. If we can travel and humanize our neighbors, that's huge. And you can also go to your supposed enemies. We went to, we can go to Palestine or Iran or Cuba as an American, Canadians don't have the same hang-ups, mm-hmm. but then I go there and it makes it, I make friends, it makes it tougher for their propaganda to demonize this American, and when I go home, it makes it tougher for our propaganda to dehumanize them. And that's so constructive and that's something I'm, I'm all over. The thing that, that great amounts of travel teach you, I think, is that everyone wants the same stuff. Yeah, it's so true. Food for their family, yeah. you know, a Stability, warm place to sleep, uh, you know, whatever it is. And also... One thing that we learn when we travel is, uh, yeah, it's just the more we get to know each other, the less fearful we are. Mm -hmm. Fear is for people who don't get out very much. Is that the biggest reward that you've taken away from this career? The biggest reward I've taken away from this career is to be able to celebrate the diversity on this planet and not be threatened by it. The world is a beautiful place. It's filled with joy and love, and the, the people who travel can celebrate that together, and people who have never traveled... They, they, miss, they miss that boat. That was Rick Steves. He's the guy that says the people of the world are wonderful and the planet we share is spectacular. But the only way to understand that is to go see it for yourself. And I agree. What a pleasure to speak with him and my other guests, Ari Aster and Jack Rayner from the movie Midsommar. And, of course, Billy Eichner from The Lion King. I want to thank you for listening and thank Mike Trutler on the board. We'll talk to you again next week.